Well, good morning, NBC. Uh, Glad to see you, whether you're here today, whether you're watching online, it's awesome to have you uh, join us for our new series that we're calling A Beautiful Mess, A Beautiful Mess, friends. Uh, Now, we are so glad you're here. Pastor Dave and I are fired up about sharing this series with you because we think uh, that many of us are craving for help with our families. For some of us, family has been a beautiful thing. Uh, We love our families. Others of us say, ah, my family is such a mess. And here's one thing I want to say to you up front. No family is perfect, and even the best families have problems. So our goal in this series is to help you discover the beautiful mess that is family and point us to health and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, can anybody in here tell me what TGIF stands for? Yes, that's right. I'm going to take you back to uh, TV in about the 1990s and ABC because then TGIF stood for, thank goodness, it's Friday. Thank goodness it's Friday, and that was their marketing pitch to get people to watch TV uh, on a Friday night, specifically families. And I have to tell you, I, as a little kid, I was hooked because on Friday nights on ABC, it included shows like Family Matters. Did anyone else in here love Steve Urkel? Uh, yes, he was that cultural phenomenon that would always say phrases like, did I do that, when he messed up, and his obsession with cheese. There was also a show called Step by Step, <clears throat> which added a blended family to the mix. And it was always interesting to watch the stepkids attempt to build relationships uh, and work out their problems. But, but of course, of course, uh, my favorite show was by far Full House. Uh, The show chronicled the life and times of the Tanner family who lived in San Francisco. Danny Tanner, who was played by Bob Saget, was a widower and trying to raise his three daughters. And so for help, he asked his best friend Joey and his brother-in-law Jesse uh, to move in and help him with the girls. In fact, I think John Stamos has not aged in 30 years. I don't know what he's doing with that hair. Now, this trend has not disappeared. In fact, family is a common thread in current movies and television shows. The current Star Wars series is all about the Skywalker family. The next movie is going to be called Rise of Skywalker. Uh, This Is Us, another popular TV show, depicts the messiness of family dynamics. Modern Family explores the various types of families that exist in America. And Tim Allen found renewed success with his family comedy, Last Man Standing. You would be hard-pressed to find many shows that don't explore the theme of family. Now, when I was a kid, Full House was my favorite show because no matter how many problems the family had, they always seemed to solve them. Right, the kids would fight, and then, and then Danny and Joey and Jesse, they would huddle up, and then they would go and they would talk to the girls. And every time they would sit down and have the talk, there would be this resolution music playing in the background. You know what I mean? Can you hear it playing in your head right now? Like the music was always telling us, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And I wonder how many of you had resolution music playing in your house when there's a fight. You see, some of us are saying, my resolution music sounded a lot like heavy metal and resolution never actually came. Well, the reason these shows were so popular and are so popular is because the producers recognize something. They recognize that everyone is part of a family And every family has problems. Now, since we're talking about families today, let me introduce you to mine on the screen behind me. Uh, Here's a picture of me with my two great loves. Uh, This is my wife, Amanda. She is a nurse, a mom, an entrepreneur, and I love watching her serve people and love our daughter. She is the love of my life. Now, my daughter's name is Jenna Joy, 
and she lives up to her name. And so she's taught me what it means to love deeply and laugh loudly. Even at her young age, I can see that she's full of joy, love, empathy, and adventure. She has turned our worlds upside down when she came into our lives. I love my family. And of course, we never have any fights, right? (laughs) Of course, that's not true. What I've discovered about my own family is this. Family is a beautiful thing, but family can feel at times like a mess. And so here's the tension I think many of us face. We want to pretend that our family is like full house. We pretend that everything is good in our family, and if a fight or challenge arises, the resolution music plays and we get through it quickly. But in reality, that's not the case. The truth is, for many of us, family is about something. As Russell Moore says, it's about winning and displaying. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that when we talk about families, we often only share and post about the good things about our family, the achievements. And so our social media accounts are flooded with stories and awards that our kids have won and colleges they've gotten into, but we never post about somebody walking through addiction. You know, we rarely share when things are difficult. Why? Well, I want you to think about your living room. Right, we built a set over here that looks a lot like, maybe it looks like your living room. So let me come over here and just get a seat on the couch. Um, in fact, this was so comfortable over here that I was uh, reading this week in the, uh, in the chair because uh, the chair was really comfortable. Now, let me show you just a few things that maybe you display in your living room. Perhaps you put up family photos in your living room. You know, you put them on your coffee table so that when people... Uh, come home or come to visit you, they can see what's going on with your family. Now, let me show you just a picture. This is a picture of me, and I have them on the screen here. This is a picture of me and my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. We all have the same name. The frame here says generations. We display nice pictures of our family. Now, maybe another thing you display in your coffee table is awards. Here's a picture of an award trophy that I won for acting when I was in high school. But it doesn't have to be trophies that you display. Maybe it's, it's diplomas with your degree or other awards that you have. And so when people come into your house, they can look at the things that you've gotten and they can ask you about it, right? Or maybe, maybe you display books. Maybe books are what you put on your, on your coffee table so that people can see how much you read and the different things that you're reading, and they can ask you all about those things. Make sure you get a Bible on the coffee table, right? So what do you display in your living room? Because right, for, for many of us, family is about winning and displaying so that we can present an image of what's going on in our families. And we present that image, listen to this, we present the image where we are the perfect family that has everything under control. That we have everything together. But when things, the things that aren't good, the hurts and the pains and the failures, we sweep those under the rug. We put those in what I'm going to call today the family lockbox. Boom. Maybe it looks a little bit like that. You got in here, you got the key, you turn it, you lock it, nobody can get inside of it. Every family has something like this. I put a picture of it on the screen there for you. And the only way to see what's going on in the lockbox is to have the key, right? You got to have the key to get inside it. What happens in the family stays in the family. Only the person with the key can, can see it. And psychologists often call this family secrets or family myths, So we start to believe certain things about our families that aren't true, and you keep everything under lock and key, because if anybody really knew what was going on in your family, if they really knew, what would they think? 
What would they think about your family? Now, Dr. Henry Cloud wrote a book entitled Secrets of the Family Tree, where he posited that all families have secrets. In fact, I saw a recent article uh, asserting that the average person holds on to 13 secrets, five of which they've never told another person. Research actually shows that people uh, start to feel psychologically or physically heavier when they've been burdened with a secret and that extra weight, and that can skew how you navigate your surroundings. So for some of us, our family starts to feel like a physical weight on our shoulders. So think about your family lockbox, right? What is inside your lockbox? When you take the key and you open it up, what do you discover inside? For some of us, Maybe the thing that's our family secret is addiction, right? Maybe one of our family secrets is that someone has an addiction. Someone is addicted to pornography or alcohol or drugs or work, and it's affecting everyone in the family for the worst, but nobody wants to talk about it, right? Maybe a loved one has been unsuccessful in life due to an addiction, so we're going to keep that in the lockbox. Maybe another secret you have is the amount of debt that your family is in. And remember, we gotta keep up with the Joneses, right? We gotta, we gotta look like we're a success in people's eyes. And so we, we, we use money we can't afford, but the debt is crushing us. That's not something we display. No, 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 we keep that in the family lockbox. Maybe, maybe it's neglect. Perhaps your family neglects each other. And you see other families who are really, really close. It's evident they love each other, but your family feels distant and you feel isolated and alone. You're not affirmed. In fact, you wish you felt love, but you don't. And so we keep that truth in the family lockbox under lock and key. Now, I can mention many other examples, but as we begin our series today, let me ask you just that very personal question. What is in your family lockbox. What are you hiding? What are you hiding in your family lockbox? Family is a beautiful mess. And so over the next few months, we want to talk about things that cause dysfunction in family. And we also want to talk about how to heal. Because even the best families have some form of dysfunction, but the thing, the key thing of this whole series is this. Being born into a dysfunctional family does not destine you for a dysfunctional life. There's hope. And so today we start to talk about the reality of shame because so many other things flow from it. And over the next few months, we're going to be talking about things like anger and jealousy and deceit and parents and in-laws and kids. And how do we deal with all that stuff? And so to understand shame today, what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to the first family. As a church, we're going to go back to the beginning, and uh, we're going to look at the book of Genesis, scenes for the book of Genesis. As a family, we're going to invite you to go back to the beginning with us, because in Genesis, the book of beginnings, we're confronted with two questions. First, how did families start? And second, what went wrong? And so to answer those questions, we're going to look at three scenes today. We're going to see family before the mess, then we're going to see what caused the mess, and finally we'll see beauty in the mess. With that in mind, let me pray for God's grace as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. 
And Lord, we recognize that you are a good God who loves us, Father, that you have adopted us into your family, as we'll see uh, today, Lord. And we pray, I pray for my friends that are here this morning, that you would soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today, that we would surrender our lives to you, and that you would get the glory for that. So I pray that you'd be with my friends, be with the preacher today as we, as we offer what we can, and as we look in your word, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1.1 begins with the grand words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if you fast forward to Genesis 2, we read this. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, right on the sixth day. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's how our story begins. Right, God takes Adam, our ancestor, our great, 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 great grandfather, if you will, and he gives him a home. He puts him in Eden. It was a true paradise. It wasn't corrupted by sin and shame, and this is where Adam lived with God. So God gives Adam a home, and he gives him food, because man's got to eat, right? And there's two trees in the garden. First, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of that latter tree, God tells Adam, don't eat. Don't eat of that tree. It's the only commandment that God gives at the beginning. He gives Adam one job, and as we'll find out, he just can't do it. And so the story of the first family begins with Adam in the garden, and it will end with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. But before that happens, everything is good. Except for one thing, verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, so I'll make him a helper fit for him. I'll give him a companion. I'll give him a wife. And this is the first time in history that God says this is not good. Everything before this was good. It's not good that man should be alone, though, he says, and the first family is formed. Adam will no longer be alone. God gives us family for two reasons. First, God gives us family to help us. He gives us family to help us. Now, some of you are out there saying, Pastor Bob, my family is not a help to me. In fact, in many ways, they're a hindrance. I can't get any work done when my family's around. But before the fall, before the mess that can be family, God gives us family to help us. Now, the Hebrew word in that verse for helper is izer, and it's not a demeaning term. In fact, commentator Alan Ross explains its usage this way. He says, the word for helper essentially describes one who provides what is lacking in the man, who can do what the man alone cannot do. Or we may say that human beings cannot fulfill their destiny except in mutual assistance. In other words, Adam couldn't do this alone. Family was meant to help him. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we learn the second reason that God gives us family. If you fast forward, verse 24, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, most translations say that a man shall leave his father and mother, but that translation is really a bit misleading because in modern sensibilities, it would imply that the man would take his bride and move far, far away from his mother and father. Maybe some of us have wanted to do that. However, a better translation here is the word forsake. 
In other words, a man shall forsake his father and mother and cling to his wife. The word is not meant literally, it's meant emotionally. And so the second reason God gives us family is for companionship, to help us and companionship. Now, traditional societies, societies would say they would place the needs of the parents first, and they would, uh, but Genesis here says that the wife's needs are now primary. And so the emotional connection between the husband and wife forms a new family, a new companionship, and it is the foundation of all other relationships in the family. But then we get to verse 25. And here we see a huge difference between the first family and our families. This is how Genesis chapter 2 ends. If you can go ahead two slides, please. Thank you. Verse 25 says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. Now, I want you to focus on that second phrase, they were not ashamed. See, our families are so filled with shame, I think, that really the only, they, there's no context that we have to live unashamed in relationship even to our spouses sometimes. And so here to say that they were unashamed means this, they were at ease with one another. Uh, they did not fear exploitation or judgment from the other person. And so to be unashamed in marriage and really in any family relationship means that other people know you and they are for you. They encourage you. They don't put you down for their own gain. They weep with you. They empathize with you. They, you know they are safe. And the reason we keep so many of our family secrets hidden in that lockbox is due to one word, and that word is shame. We feel shame. In his great book, Shame Interrupted, Dr. Ed Welch defines shame this way. He says this. He says, shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Wow. Now, when you listen to that, shame is three things that encompass just about everything. It's something you did, it's something done to you, and it's something associated with you. When you think about it that way, Really, shame is everywhere and in everything. Welch uh, brings it out further this way. He says, all it takes is a tradition of demeaning, critical words from the right person. All it takes is nothing from the right person. No interest in you. No words spoken to you. No love. If you are treated as if you do not exist, you will feel shame. And even as I read that, some of us are thinking about someone in our family a parent, a sibling, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin. They are the reason you hate family gatherings. Why? Because family can be beautiful, but family can also be a complete and total hot mess. Amen. But in the beginning, before the mess, family was given to help us and to be our companions. That's what family was like before the mess to come. Now, let's come back over here to the living room and think about this. Let's think about family being just a bit of a mess. I don't know about you, but a lot of words were spoken in my living room growing up and even today where we sit in couches and chairs like this and we spend a lot of time with our families. However, if you're like me, sometimes on those couches, in those chairs, arguments can explode, 
And families can quickly turn from being helpers and companions into enemies. Rather than being accepted, you start to feel judged, right? Has anyone felt judged in their family? Outside the family, there is one other place I think many of us can relate to feeling judged, and I am speaking, of course, of the gym, right? Have you ever walked into a gym? In fact, if you walk into most gyms, there's these really fit people that are running as hard as they can on the treadmills, and they're grunting loudly as they lift weights. And if you are that person, you're probably feeling judged right now, right? Now, there was a gym I belonged to a while back, and it was called Planet Fitness. And their slogan was this, we're, we're the home of the judgment-free zone. In fact, somebody told me later, though, if you are somebody who lifts hot weights, they actually have a big buzzer that alerts people to you grunting too loudly. Talk about judgment, right? You're not allowed to judge anyone around you no matter how he or she looks. That's their slogan, even if they're hypocrites about it. And I wonder today, what if family was like that? Because you see, many times these pictures we put on our walls, on our coffee tables, are actually just a facade. Who your family really is, is locked away in the lockbox. But what if family was a judgment-free zone, like Genesis 2? What would that look like? How would that play itself out? Family before the mess was about help and companionship. What went wrong? Well, that's where we turn next. Next, we see what caused the mess. Next, we see what caused the mess. And in our next scene, we see the entrance of shame into the world. Because the family before the mess was a beautiful glass, the entrance of shame shattered it into a thousand pieces. And we've been trying to pick up them ever since Genesis 3. In scene 2, we meet another character, Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Ah, the serpents. Israelites, Israelites considered the serpents arch enemies. In Numbers 21, a plague of fiery serpents killed the Israelites in the wilderness. And so it's no surprise here that the serpent shows up at the beginning. And he begins a chain of events that start to unmake the beauty of the first family. And his poisonous venom is still felt in our lives today. Let me share with you a modern story that captures what happens in Genesis 3. There's a story I read in an article that said a man and a woman together were in a garden and they came across a serpent. And the serpent awakens them to their own mortality and their lives are changed forever. But that is where the similarities between Genesis and the modern story end because in this story, the man, the modern story, the man grabs a shovel and decapitates the snake, which is a four-foot-long western diamondback rattlesnake after it spooked his wife. But when he went to pick up the severed head of the snake, it sank its fangs into his flesh and released a deadly dose of venom. What he didn't realize is that recently killed snakes can still strike. And so friends, the point I'm making is this. Christians know the devil is real, but be alert because he still wants to sink his teeth into your life and attack your family, and when he does, he will not let go. You have to remove him. In his craftiness, he deceives, and he sinks his teeth into the first family, second part of verse one. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of that tree in the garden? What does he do first? 
He challenges the truth that God gives to them. He challenges God's love and wisdom. Now, the serpent here, of course, as I mentioned, is Satan, our enemy, the father of lies, and he is seeking to destroy the family's relationship with each other and God. And so look how he is spinning the story here and in the following verses. He is ignoring all the good things that God has done in the family, and he's making God sound unreasonable. And isn't that what Satan does in our families Right, very quickly, we forget all the blessings that God has given to us and all the ways God has taken care of us. And Satan manipulates us to focus on ourselves and what we think we deserve. Husbands, have you ever felt that way towards your wife? Wives, have you ever felt that way towards your husband? That you forget all the ways that they love us and we only focus on the bad things they do, right? Children, have you ever tried to manipulate your parents? Well, the woman is drawn into this conversation. Verse 2, she says this. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, notice very carefully what she says. Does she represent God correctly? Well, she's mostly correct, but the serpent has placed doubt in her minds. That God's commands are unreasonable. God's commands were not to eat of the fruit, but the woman adds the phrase, if you touch it, you'll die. And by entertaining the serpent's suggestions, she left herself exposed to the next attack. And he sees an opening. Touch the tree and die? Well, that sounds unreasonable, right? Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. If you want to know what caused the mess in your family and what still causes the mess in your family, listen very closely to what the serpent says. He says, you will not surely die. In other words, he says, God is a liar. God didn't tell you the truth. Can you really trust him? He says, God knows if you eat, you'll be like him. In other words, God wants to keep all the power for himself. God wants to deprive you of knowledge, of immortality. He's holding you back, friends. Don't you see? That in these two sentences, Satan reframed the narrative about God. That before the mess, the first family understood this. God is good That God is love, he blesses, he wants to protect his children. But Genesis 3 is a hinge moment where Satan captures the narrative. God is a liar, God is selfish, he doesn't love you. Worse, he says, he wants to control you. How different does that sound? How many times in your family has the narrative been hijacked? That one moment you believe your spouse is for you, that your parents love you. You And in an instant, the serpent whispers in our ears and changes the narrative. And we start to believe, oh, he doesn't love me. She is always so selfish. Mom and dad never, never understand. Friends, look back at the first family because they bought the lie too. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and she ate. 
And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The fruit delighted their eyes, that it would make them wise. And so they took and they ate. And Satan's deception was this, take and eat. And in the background, as they devoured the fruit, a hiss and a sinister laugh could be heard. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Friends, just sit here for a moment. I want us to feel the weight of this. I want us to see the implications of this moment because every time you sit on your living, in your living room and a fight breaks out, that every time you stuff another family secret in that lockbox, every time you close the door to your room and you weep over a broken relationship, it all began right here with the crunch of an apple or whatever fruit you think they were eating. This is how dysfunction began. Dr. Ed Welch makes another observation in his book. He says that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were offspring of the royal line. They were offspring of God, the king of the universe, and they were clothed with, with his honor. But, but this moment changed everything. He says when they chose what the king forbade, they were opting out of the royal line. They cut their association with the creator and chose to identify with a creature who was both an animal and anti-God, a serpent and Satan himself. In other words, in this moment, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken. Why? Because they chose a new allegiance. And friends, every time we buy the lie that the serpent presents us in our family Relationships, we are forging an allegiance with him and that will bring dysfunction and destruction into our families because buying the lie causes us to hide and we stuff another card in our family lockbox. But then God shows up in verse 8. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I want you to put yourself in this situation here, because we've all played different roles, right? So, so let's imagine that you're Adam and Eve here, and so you recognize that you've done something wrong, uh, something shameful, and then you hear, and then you hear your spouse walk in the door, or you hear your parents' car pull in the driveway. What do you do? You run and hide, right? On the other hand, maybe, maybe you're like God here, not saying you're God, but you know, the God situation here is you know what happened and you're coming home to confront your spouse or your child or your parents or your aunt or your uncle, whoever. Imagine what that feels like. What do you say? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? That's all God says. He knows very well where they are, but he wants to hear it from them. Adam's response indicates the effects of sin. First, Adam lost his innocence. And second, he's now afraid of God. That his innocence was replaced by fear and guilt. He was ashamed. Talk about relational breakdown. Verse 10, and he said, Adam's response was this. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. 
I hid myself. And there it is. The serpent's plan is complete. We've witnessed the entrance of shame into the world and into the family. And you want to know where the societal breakdown of the family began? It began right here, friends, in the garden. Because what follows is a case study of shame and how shame causes dysfunction. Because God asks Adam, he says, well, Adam, listen. Listen, who told you you were naked, Adam? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And God already knows, but it breaks his heart. And then we start to see how shame brings dysfunction because when we feel shame, what do we do? We try to justify ourselves. Well, how do we do that? We start blaming others. What does Adam do? He blames Eve and he blames God. What does he say? He says, God, that woman you you gave to me, she made me do it. And then all eyes move to Eve. And what does she do? She says, it was that serpent over there. He made me do it. When we experience shame, we do two things. We hide and we blame. And on and on it goes, even to this very day, because this is life after shame has entered the world. Dr. Welch again asserts that shame connects three human experiences. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. First, he says, when we feel shame, we feel like an outcast, that we feel like we don't belong Have you ever felt like you don't belong in your family? When we feel that way, we start to justify our actions and our existence. That's exactly what Adam does here, right? Secondly, we feel naked. In other words, you feel vulnerable. You feel like everyone is looking at you and all they see is just ugly. In fact, I suspect some of us feel vulnerable in our families and In our post-fall families, the people who were supposed to help us and to be our companions have actually shamed us. Now, I mentioned that that gym before, Planet Fitness. I mentioned it earlier in the message. Um, I want to share kind of a humorous story about a man who took their slogan to the extreme. There's a guy named Eric who walked into a local Planet Fitness, and he thought he knew what to expect, right? It was the home of the judgment-free zone. Well, his expectations were quite wrong. Because onlookers were shocked when this man walked in, and upon entrance to the gym, he immediately removed all of his clothing. And he walked around for a bit, but eventually he started sitting on a yoga mat, and the police were called, and the police were dispatched to the location, and officers found him on that same mat, engaged in some kind of yoga-like position, completely naked. Well, the gym regulars were not impressed. He was arrested without further incident and charged with indecent exposure and disorderly conduct. But listen to this. His only response was, I thought this was a judgment-free zone. Now, that's a pretty silly illustration, but I am, and I'm not suggesting that you do that at all in your life or your family. But, but it goes to show that after the fall, things are very, very different now, Right? Now when we're exposed physically, not physically, but metaphorically, it's associated with shame. Finally, you feel unclean. You think and feel like something is wrong with you. And if we're honest, listen, our families have and can do a number on us, friends, because words matter. And over the course of our lives, many words have been said about us and to us in our families. And we may have started to believe that we're unclean, that we're dirty, that we're contaminated. And all those feelings can lead to actions that cause dysfunction. There is a reason that shame puts us in therapy. What caused the mess in our families? 
Sin and the entrance of shame caused the mess. And this really becomes one of the biggest questions of the whole Bible. That once we were naked and unashamed, but now we're, now we're naked and ashamed. What do we do with our shame? And in fact, you may be saying here, Pastor Bob, listen, my, my family is so messed up, you would not even believe it. Don't even get me started. I, I, listen, you, you got some time? You need a couple cups of coffee to hear about my family. Now, no matter where you are and no matter how messed up your family is, I want you to hear this today. There is always hope for healing. There is always the possibility of redemption. And that's our final scene. The beauty in the mess. The beauty in the mess. That after Adam and Eve failed to take responsibility for their actions, God steps in and restores order. Right? As a good father, as a good parent, he offers consequences. Right? The serpent has a consequence. He's going to be cursed amongst all livestock. Right, the woman has a consequence, pain and childbearing. The man has a consequence, work is going to be hard. And then, and then, at the end of the chapter, he banishes Adam and Eve from Eden, which is really the worst punishment of all. That instead of living in paradise with unending food, they live outside of paradise and they're going to experience death. And you say, okay, well, that doesn't sound very Hopeful, that actually sounds like a pretty harsh punishment. Well, to be sure, it was harsh because their sin literally changed the world, but but don't miss the ray of hope that shines brightly from Genesis 3.15. He says this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That God says this to the serpent. He says, you're going to be the enemy of the human race. But from the line of Adam and Eve will be born a king, Jesus Christ, and he shall crush your head. And that's the good news of the gospel here in Genesis, that we're banished, but hope is still present. Look at what happens in 3.20. He says, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What just happened? Right, this is the first time in the whole story that the woman is, receives a name, and her name is Eve. Do you know what Eve means? It means life. And it's qualified with the phrase that she's the mother of all living. In other words, there's more to the story, church. This wasn't the end of the family. It was the beginning of the family. Because you see, God, in his grace, was beginning a story that would not end in death, but redemption. And no matter how messed up your family is, God can rewrite redemption into it. We catch a glimpse of this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. Wow. See, as a good father, God offers consequences, yes, but he also offers grace. He doesn't send his children out with nothing. He clothes them. He covers them with his grace despite all the pain, despite how they messed up. He still loves them. That even though they sinned, God still pursued them with an overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. That's the story of the whole Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation. So how about you? Where do you need some beauty in your mess? How can your mess become 
beautiful because some of you are saying, Pastor Bob, my family is too far gone. It can't happen. But I want you to hear this today. You are never too far gone. Never. God can always step in and do miracles. You will experience dysfunction in this world, but you are not, not, not destined for a dysfunctional life. And so to be the person who injects function into a dysfunctional family system, I want to leave you with two things. First, we need to recognize the shame and dysfunction in our families. Now, the reason dysfunctional patterns often continue in our families is because no one recognizes them. No one admits that shame is present in your life, but it's really everywhere. And go home tonight. Open up that, that literal or physical lockbox. Talk, talk, talk about those things with your family. Get them out in the open because it's, it's not until we get the cards on the table that we can find the beauty. Secondly, you've got to know your identity. Russell Moore says there is a question everyone is asking in relation with this. He says, the question is this, who am I? Because in so many ways, our family shapes who we are. Our family is the foundation in many ways of our identity. But the only way, church, to tear down a dysfunctional family system based on shame is to find a new identity. Well, what do I mean? Well, if you're a Christian... We believe that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we're given new life, a, a new name, a new identity in Jesus Christ, and through Christ, one day we will find our way back to the tree of life. Look at the end of Genesis 3, last verse. It says, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, they were banished from the presence of God. And these cherubim, these, these huge angels, were put at the entrance to the garden to warn sinners that they were not allowed in the presence of God. And that flaming sword means the only way back into the garden is through judgment. How do we find our way back into the presence of God? Well, to get back to the presence of God, a king had to undergo judgment, and he did. That Jesus Christ walked on this earth for 33 years and was crucified on a cross, the instrument of shame. He bore both the wrath and judgment of God. In other words, he went under the sword. Why? So you and I could enter the presence of God so we could find our way back to the tree of life. That when Jesus died, Matthew 27 records that the veil... The veil between the holy of holies, the very presence of God, was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning God did it. And the truth for us today is this. Only Jesus can bring beauty into your mess. Only he can rewrite the story of your family tree. But in order for that to happen, in order for Jesus to rewrite your story, we have to give Jesus the key to our lockbox. Listen to this, church. The only way to remove shame from your family, to remove dysfunction, is to hand Jesus the key to your lockbox and watch as he puts the key in and as he opens 
it up and looks at your secrets one by one and takes them on himself. That on the cross, Jesus experienced the shame of the world so you and I don't have to be ashamed. On the cross, Jesus took your addiction in your family. He took those and he said, you know what? Instead of that, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to put that in here. That on the cross, Jesus said, I'm going to take that sin debt that you owed to God. And I'm going to, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay it in full. I'm going to pay it in full. That on the cross, I'm going to take that, that neglect that you experienced in your family. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to adopt you into my family so that you are fully known and truly loved. And now God says to us, I will make you into something beautiful. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10 says this. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, 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 a God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus has taken away our shame. Will you give him the key to your lockbox so he can re rewrite your story? Because church, here's the story of our family. We look at these pictures here. First, we saw family before the mess. Genesis 2.25, Adam, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. Second, we saw what caused the mess. Then in Genesis 3.8-10, the serpent sunk his teeth into the first family and shame entered the human experience. But on the cross... On the cross, Jesus rewrote our story, and that is the beauty in the mess. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossian church. He says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Friends, receive that today. That in the garden, Satan hissed and he laughed, but it was Jesus who had the last laugh. It was Satan who was put to shame on the cross. My friend Steve Coble puts it this way. He says, Satan's temptation led to shame, but God puts him to open shame through the cross. Thank God for Good Friday. That is poetic justice. And Resurrection Sunday, no more shame. Because Jesus has crushed the heel of the serpent, the head of the serpent with his heel. He's taken away your shame and he provided a path out of dysfunction. Will you, will you give him the key to your lockbox today? Let me pray for us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We come as broken, messed up people who have broken, messed up families, Lord, but we know, we know that you are a God of redemption that you gave your own son for us so we could be ad adopted into your family and return to the royal line that Adam and Eve forsook. This series is going to be all about taking our mess, our shame, our jealousy, our, 
our de- the deceit that's present there, the envy, Lord, the, the brokenness between, between parents and kids, Lord, and, and turning it into something beautiful. Today, Lord, we give you the key and ask you to open the lockbox of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stay in church.